Um, thank you guys for, for coming tonight, and thank you for uh, being so faithful to um, come out to fellowship with each other. Um, I, I shared this last year at, at Super Study, but I want to mention it again because um, it's an important part of my life, and uh, it happens to be the anniversary of not only... Um, Meeting my wife because we met. Well, it wasn't that we we met at Super Study. Uh, I was pursuing her for like a year, um, but it was that she finally said yes at Super Study, basically. Uh, and that was uh, thank you. That was eleven years ago, and then we got married a year later, um, which we just celebrated our ten year anniversary. So, uh, yeah. So Super Study is a, a very special, has a very special place in our hearts, and um, and I'm also grateful for her because she is amazing. She she actually helped me write a little bit of this sermon, so um, I I'm grateful for her. I want to start with a little game, uh, which I usually do. It's kind of on brand for me, um, but I'm going to give you uh, three descriptions. I'm going, to, I'm going to go one at a time. I'm going to give you a description of Act 3 of a movie. And you're going to tell me what movie it is. Does that work? All right. Uh, our hero inadvertently throws water on the villain, causing her to melt. Wizard of Oz. Second one. Our hero produces... A missing shoe, which fits and reveals said hero to be Cinderella. <laughs> These are uh, too easy. Last one. Our hero, despite... Oh, this is just going to give it away. <laughs> uh, despite his aiming system being malfunctioned, shoots the perfect shot, creating a chain reaction to blow up... Star Wars. Star Wars. Blowing up the enemy's ultimate weapon base, Star Wars. <laughs> it's actually not fair because those guys are like movie fanatics. So, The crescendo of the story, any story, is the moment we all wait for. It's what brings resolution to the tension, and it is the answer to the question. Ultimately, every story is a mere reflection at best and plagiarism at worst to the original story. The source of all stories, the story of God and redemption. So tonight, I want to talk about the story of God. So the past few weeks, we've been looking at theology, um, different aspects of theology. We looked at uh, Mago Dei. Uh, the image of God. We looked at uh, the sovereignty of God, and we looked at uh, the God's presence in heaven, the heaven of God. Um, and we also, I forgot, we had prolegomena with Austin, who gave us like the introduction to the benefit and the, the purpose of theology. And tonight, I want to give you the story of God, where all theology is found. But with, it, with stories in general, lately, we have a problem. The concept of story is under attack. 
We live in a time of sound bites, retweets, TikToks, BuzzFeeds, and Insta Reels. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you are being bombarded with information in many sized servings. This stream of micro content is pouring into your brains and it doesn't leave you unaffected. Instant gratification rewires our brains and our minds and it changes the way we actually process information and truth. This steady diet is formative. So now our question throughout the day has become, how does this serve me now? And it kills our appetite for slow processing. It kills our curiosity and our care for others. And it kills our desire and grasp of story itself. But actually, this is nothing new. This has always been here. And maybe it's why these platforms even have gained such popularity. Was it the Insta platforms that made our quick fix selfishness a thing? Or was it our quick fix selfishness that made them? Tonight I want to look at God's story and I want to look at its features. And hopefully those features and those aspects of God's story can help us see his story afresh and help cultivate an appetite for it it in our lives. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. The history of redemption is the story of the Bible, and the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. This is the topic that the Apostle Paul writes about in his letter to the church at Rome. Paul had never been to this church. Paul planted many churches, but he he did not plant this particular church. The church in Rome was started by Jews who had made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And this is after the resurrection and after the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. And it was when Peter preached that great sermon in Jerusalem. And many were added to the church. And those who were there from the city of Rome, who were Jewish, took that message back to Rome and planted the church in Rome. And they became leaders in the church at Rome, these people who were on that pilgrimage. But the Caesar in Rome, eventually, um, his name was Emperor Claudius, he made an edict and he banned all Jewish people from Rome. So those church leaders who established the church, had now, they now had to leave the church. And the church was left um, with half a church. And that was the Gentiles from the, the city of Rome. They're the only ones left in the church as the Jews had to leave the city. However, a new emperor took the throne by the name of Nero five years later. So this is five years after their ejection, Nero takes the throne and he reverses the ban 
So now you have the Jews coming back to the city. And a lot can happen in a church after five years, if you think about it. Five years is a long time. There's a lot, some of you, how many, raise your hand if you have come to Grace Church in the last five years. Raise your hand. It's a lot of people. So there's a lot of new people coming into the church. There's people who were um, maybe younger believers at the time the, the, the Jewish leaders had left, and now they had become mature in their faith, and they have now taken over the leadership in that church. So imagine this former group of leaders coming back into the church they started, and there's a, there's a new sheriff in town. There's new people in this church who are now leading it. And so you can imagine that would cause some tension. And there was. And there was significant division in the church. But Paul, who had just finished his missionary work that he considered finished in in all of the Roman Empire, he had operated that missionary work from a hub city, an epicenter that he left from to go do his missionary exploits. And that was the city of Antioch. So Antioch was his hub base for the, for the Roman Empire. What he believed is he finished the task of preaching the gospel where Christ had not yet been followed and named and glorified. And he wanted to take the gospel where Christ had not yet been named. And that place was, you guys know? Spain. He wanted to get to Spain because it was the final frontier for gospel ministry. And so he sees the church at Rome as being a significant opportunity and strategy for being his new base of operations to get all the way to the other side of the world, in the known world. So he wants to get to Spain, but he wants the church in Rome to be his new missionary hub. But there was a problem. As I said, the church was divided. So the problem with having a launch pad or a base of operations when it's divided is it's not a good foundation to leave from. You don't, they're not united. How would they support Paul? Who would support Paul there? So he wrote the letter to this church he's never been to specifically for the purpose of reuniting this church. And he addresses specific issues in the church because of their division. And in order to fix what was broken, in order to get them to be the robust missionary epicenter, the question was, how can he get them to be reunited? How can he get them to love each other? How can he get them to see and deal with those issues? So what is this Paul's strategy for this letter to address those issues? The answer he gives them is a theology of redemption going all the way back to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses and to the prophets, showing how Jesus is the culmination and crescendo of that story and how his work, how Jesus' work in Act 3 of the story made the world an entirely different place that the world is not the same place because of what Jesus did. And so we're going to read the opening lines to that letter. 
And what we're going to do is I want to make a few observations. I'm going to make seven observations about what that story is about. Seven observations from the first four verses of this passage that gives us insight to what the story is all about. So hopefully that will grasp it a little bit better and hopefully cherish it a little bit more. Now, I want to start at the outset by saying this is not an expositional sermon. What I want to do is I want to walk through the verses and I, I simply want to make observations about redemptive history from this. If I was preaching it to like a Bible study, say Valley, which we are going to in the fall, we're going to preach through Romans, um, then it will be look, it'll look a little different. So uh, this is seven observations about the story of God to give us a greater grasp of it and to get, give us a greater delight in it. So much of our faith is waiting. So much of our life is waiting. We want to be... We want things to be right, and we want them to be right right now. And that's not natural. For the Jewish people, they understood waiting. They had to wait 2,000 years from the promise of Abraham for the seed that would come to be a blessing to the whole world. 2,000 years waiting. That's not if you count before Abraham, and the promise to Adam and Eve that the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. That's an additional 2,000 years. So this is 4,000 years of waiting for the promise. If you think about it, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. So a majority of history itself was waiting for Jesus. More time than us having Jesus. So it's just really interesting that they had to wait a long time. They understood waiting. But in the anticipation and in the ache for resolution for Act 3, when that time came, the Jews turned their backs on Act 3, and they ignored the crescendo. It's interesting because we kind of do the opposite. How easily do we take Act 3 and cut it out of the beautiful terrain of the story of Act 1 and 2? So that's what I want to do today is I want to get us to re-cherish the whole story. So let's start by reading Romans 1. Verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So look right back at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. My first observation is this. The story 
It's God's. This is God's gospel. This is the gospel of God. This is God's crescendo to his own story. It's tempting to think about the gospel as a means to our own end. Like I mentioned, sometimes we like to grab Act 3 and apply it to the problems in our own life, and that's the story. If the Jews, like I said, were guilty of ignoring Act 3, we, act, we ignore Act 1 and 2. But the story isn't about us, primarily. It's primarily about God's showcase of himself. It's by him, meaning that it's invented by him. It was imagined by him. It was planned by him. Some people can get a taste of a morsel of Reformed theology, or they might read a little Calvin, you know, the cage stage. You guys are familiar with the cage stage? And they can sometimes end up being a Marcionite. Have you heard of Marcion? So he was a, a heretic from like 150 A.D., and what happens is he saw, read the Old Testament, and then he read the New Testament, and he decided there's two different gods here. There's an Old Testament God who's angry, and then there's a New Testament God that loves us. And so he pitted the Old Testament and New Testament against each other. And I think that sometimes that happens with us Calvinists when we get a little taste of what it means to be a wretch. And when, what we, when we really discover the holiness of God— we take it to the next step, and we make it that God the Father is somehow a different disposition than the Son, and that the Father is the one that is unhappy and actually prefers not to deal with humanity. And he's so angry, and he's so reluctant that he doesn't even want to look at us. And, but Jesus is the one who loves us, so he makes a way. And he makes a plan to put his own robes on us. And then when the Father sees us, he no longer sees us. He now sees Jesus. Now there's some have-truths there. There are some things that are true, but it's not fully true. Because this is God's gospel. This is his invention. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It's by him. It's about him. He is the central character of the story, and it's his idea. Let's look at verse 2, second observation, which he promised beforehand. Second observation, it's planned. So point one, it's, it's God's. Point two, it's planned. This is not plan B. This is not a new story. The gospel is not a backup plan. God was orchestrating this story from before it began. And over the course of the Bible story, he gave clues to what was coming up in Act 3, starting all the way back in Act 1. When Adam and Eve sinned, and sin brought death and curse and alienation, God gave the first clue. He told Eve that a seed or offspring from her would be born and would crush the head of the serpent to bring rescue and undo the mess. What do you think that meant to Adam and Eve? What do you think they were longing for? 
it meant the reversal of the fall. It meant a reversal of the curse, a reversal of death, a reunion of relationship between each other because there was a rupture between them and ultimately with God. One TMS professor, uh, Dr. Irv Busnitz, says that there are hints in Hebrew that Eve actually expected her firstborn child to be the seed, to undo the curse. She was so ready for it that when Cain was born, Eve said in Genesis 4.1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, or I have been given an asset by God. There is almost a hopeful anticipation and expectation that this was the seed that was going to undo the curse. But as the story advances, clues keep coming. And the mountain peaks of these clues throughout Scripture are called covenants, agreements, oaths from God, promises. And they give us the biggest details of the Old Testament about what was to come in the third act. To Eve, it was the seed that would undo the curse. To Abraham, it would be the seed, his seed, that would be a blessing to the whole world. To Moses, it would be a prophet like him, and it would be a heart surgery that would enable obedience and give life. To David, it would be a seed, a son, a king that would sit on the throne forever. Meaning, this descendant, when he starts his reign and when he sits on that throne, then somehow, okay, what's forever mean? He's going to sit on the throne and he's going to be there forever. That somehow will be the reversal of the curse that will start. It will be the catalyst somehow that will undo it all. And they knew these all built on each other. This is what the people anticipated. This is what was promised beforehand. Let's look at a third observation. Look at verse 2. Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is where the Old Testament was headed. This is what the Old Testament points to. All of it was preparation and building for Act 3. But Act 1 and 2 are not inconsequential. Act 1 and 2 were God's strategy for bringing the whole world back. So he chooses Abraham and his family, Israel, to be the means to his ends of reaching the whole world. We talked about this briefly when I mentioned John Piper's book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. Have you ever wondered why Israel was so spoiled? Why did he just lavish, this, lavish them with so much grace and mercy and, and love and affection? Have you ever wondered that? Why is the Old Testament all about Israel? I love that, that that answer, the underdogs. It just exposes that this, there's no way this group of people would be anything great. He chooses the most unlikely to showcase that it's him. And so he does that with Israel. In God's genius, he chooses an elderly couple to be a beacon of light to the whole world. Israel was beloved and spoiled by God, not for the sake of being spoiled rotten, but as a billboard for the whole world to look and see that that's the true God. Their God is the true God. Even Solomon prayed that 
in dedicating the temple, that the, the nations would stream to this place, that the beacon of light would attract the whole world. But Israel failed to be that billboard and that, and that beacon of light. Isaiah calls this billboard-like role a tree that had to be chopped down. But as Isaiah says, despite Israel's failure and downfall, a shoot would grow out of the stump of that torn down tree. And that Jesus himself would be the lighthouse, the billboard. And that the tree, that tree that is Jesus himself would grow and that the whole world would not only see it, but they would be saved and rescued by it. This wasn't just a mere list of prophecies, like a checklist details of predictions that were going to be fulfilled. It wasn't like a redemptive scavenger hunt that the nation of Israel was just checking off. All of the Old Testament leans towards resolution in Jesus. It's more robust than a mere list. Let's look at the beginning of verse 3 for our fourth observation. Concerning his son. Fourth observation is, it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. Act three is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Act three isn't primarily about a ticket out of hell. Do you understand that? The gospel is about Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. We need to be mesmerized by his story. In, the, in his details of his spirit-wrought birth, in the peculiarity of his poverty and his humanity, in the slow ministry of leading a band of peasants, students, in the stunning first fruits of curse reversal and his miracles, and the windows into kingdom life through his preaching and teaching, his betrayal, his execution, and his burial. And ultimately, in the world-altering, universe-shifting resurrection, this is the gospel. This is Christianity. God's story concerns his son. Is that where your concern is? Is he enough? Let's continue reading verse 3 for our fifth observation. Concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Our fifth observation is it leads, this story leads to Jesus as king. His, king, his kingship and his kingdom is in focus here. It's the focus of the crescendo of the story. Not primarily about what Jesus can do for us, but about he being the king of the universe. His reestablishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is what was promised to David. David, in 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important passages of scripture in all the Bible, the Davidic covenant, the the Davidic promise that he would, David, have a seed that would sit forever on the throne, establishing the kingdom forever. And the people would dwell in the land forever. 
And from about 1000 BC to about 586 BC, the Davidic king reigned just over 400 years. That is the longest single family dynasty in history that we know of. It's a great dynasty. It's a long dynasty, but it's not forever. And so when you look, if you have your Bibles, look briefly at 2 Kings 25 and verse 7. 2 Kings 25, verse 7. This is the end of the Davidic line. Babylon comes in. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in. And read with me, verse 7. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, before Zedekiah's eyes. And then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. Which makes us wonder, did Nebuchadnezzar know about that prophecy to David? And was he trying to defeat that prophecy that God himself had made? This is the last king in the Davidic line. His children were slaughtered before his eyes, before his own eyes were cut out, so that the last thing, Nebuchadnezzar made sure that the last thing that he ever saw with his eyes was the end of the Davidic line in the execution of his kids. And so for the entire rest of the second half of the Old Testament is the people of God crying out, what is happening here? What is going on? You always said that we'd be in the land. We'd be in the land forever. And you said that David's son would always be on the throne. And now we're in Babylon, suffering. Our people are weeping. And for a long time, too. God, have your promises failed? And this tension is what so many of the Psalms is about. This is what Psalm 89 is about. Psalm 89 starts with 2 Samuel 7's Davidic covenant, the promise to David's seed to be on the throne. And that Psalm ends with the, the end of the Davidic line and the captivity in Babylon. And God's people are aching for answers. And the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, they say, God's promises didn't fail. We failed. We failed to be the lighthouse. But despite Israel's faithlessness, God remains faithful. And the promise is still coming, they said. It's still coming. And so Paul says here, this is the one we've waited for. This is the seed of David according to the flesh. This is the one who brings resolution. Let's look at verse 4. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness 
by his resurrection from the dead. Sixth observation, the story culminates in the resurrection. The story culminates in the resurrection. I have quick, three quick things I want to say about resurrection and why it, it is so important and why it is the culmination of the story. Number one, resurrection vindicates Jesus. He is declared to be the Son of God. Not that he becomes the Son of God, but that he is exposed and revealed to be the Son of God. From a human perspective, it looks like the, the king has failed. From a human perspective, he died. And he left. But the Spirit reveals to the world that it isn't a failure, but a victory for the true king. That's what the resurrection is. It's a vindication. Second, if being a Davidic descendant, according to the flesh, proves that he is Messiah, that's the previous part of the verse, if being a Davidic descendant, according to the flesh, proves that he's the one the messiah that he's the messiah the one that the the jews were waiting for then his beating death proves that he is the son of god over all humanity including the gentiles he is lord over humanity not just the the jews he's lord over all peoples caesars of the time of this time that this is being written were known often as the son of God. So this was intentional shade being thrown on rulers of the world at this time when he is declared the son of God. This is war declared on the Caesars and the kings of earth. Lastly, why is resurrection the culmination of the story? I would say this, I believe, is the most important reason that resurrection is the culmination of the story is that resurrection fulfills all the promises the Old Testament were pointing to. What did Adam and Eve want? They wanted the curse reversed. They wanted a reversal of disease. They wanted a reversal of sickness. They wanted a reversal of strife. They wanted a reversal of death. While Jesus' death dealt with sin, like a sacrificial offering, uniting himself to us like, like a chain, like if humanity is a chain, then Jesus became a link in the chain, dying. And it was his resurrection that pulled us all out of death, bringing not only us out of death, but all of creation itself, the entire earth and the universe out of death. Jesus lives, and just like we sang, so shall we. We will one day rise, and we will one day come back. Heaven as we know it right now isn't forever. As we know it, emphasize as we know it. It's a temporary state. But one day, our future our forever future, is heaven on earth. It's a uniting of heaven and earth like it once was. And Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, will be fulfilled 
because Jesus' resurrection was the catalyst that got it all started. He, according to scripture, is the first fruits of resurrection. We are the crop, the rest of the crop that will, that will rise. Finally, read with me the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you read Christ there, that means anointed one, predominantly meaning Messiah or king. And Lord is kurios, which means master. But ultimately, it is the, it's the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament name of Yahweh. So, observation seven is, the story, it's a reunion. In the garden and the fall, the worst part wasn't the loss of a home. The worst part was a loss of family. Humanity lost God. The one they had walked with, as I mentioned, heaven and earth were once one. But then it was separated from the presence of God to the absence of God. Later on in the story, God would step in and bad stuff would usually happen when God steps on the scene. Because when heaven meets earth, a sin-polluted earth, death happens. And when he set his love on his people of Israel at Sinai, he landed in the middle of their camp, and that was a problem. It was a problem that God showed up. But God, in his grace, made a way for for him to live in their midst by providing a sacrificial system. And in God's kindness, God condescended to them and lived in a tent for a long time. And he stayed there until Solomon built a temple. And he lived in that temple. But it was Israel's failure to be that lighthouse And it got so bad that Ezekiel says that the glory departed from the temple. God literally left. He took off. But the prophet said that one day, one day, Yahweh would return. Yahweh would come back. Ezekiel says, talks about the future return of Yahweh. Isaiah tells us in chapter 12, Isaiah tells us in chapter 40, and Isaiah tells us in chapter 52 about the future return of Yahweh. Isaiah 52, 7 and 8 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, the voice of of your watchmen, it's the one who goes up on the tower or the mountain and looks, and they lift up their voice together and they sing for joy, for eye to eye, they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Crossroads, ultimately, Paul tells us here, Jesus is the return of Yahweh. Jesus is the one that they waited for. This is the great story, and this is the crescendo of God. And better than a get-out-of-hell-free card, 
is the grand story itself. He is the beloved father. He is our family. He is our king. The good news is that the king initiated resurrection life available to all who would turn from their own kingdom building and just give themselves up to the true king and his kingdom. And he is ready to give and adopt you and embrace you into his kingdom. There is no better kingdom and there is no better king. For those of you who don't know him, Will you let go of your own story? And will you be about his story? And for you, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, get to know Act 1 and 2. Fall in love with the Old Testament. It's not an overnight switch. It's a long journey of discovery. And it will take long stretches of time and big chumps, chunks of scripture. But it's a discovery that in itself is not a means to an end, but a joy. So slow down and enjoy the story. Enjoy God's story. Let's pray. Father, we love your story. And we know that, God, all the information that we eat, like cotton candy, it, by the end of the day, leaves us so full that when we come to the flame and yawn of your story, we're just not ready for it. We're not, we don't have an appetite for it. So God, I pray you would wean us off the junk food. Wean us off the immediate satisfaction of the short sound bites. And I pray that you would slow down our hearts as we drag it through your word. I pray that you would not leave us unaffected, but you would cultivate that love for your story so that when we get to act three, God, it would be more precious because we see what it built, what was built up to. And ultimately, we want to be about not what the hand of God gives, but be about what his face looks like and the person of the story himself, Jesus himself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.